0: This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher with me and Dr. Mick This episode is entitled, Being a Beast for World Environment Day. June 5th, just a couple of days ago as I record this, was World Environment Day. This is a United Nations Day that has been marked since 1974 to address pressing environmental issues. The theme varies from year to year, but in this episode I am not engaging with this year's theme of ecosystem restoration at all, which is not to say that I don't think that it's important and no doubt would make a worthy episode for another time instead i want to link uh, the general concept of world environment day with a book that i've been reading of late and enjoying and want to recommend to you and as the title of the episode suggests that book is being a beast adventures across the species divide by charles foster published by metropolitan books in 2016. And I have a nice hardback edition of that. Foster is an English writer, traveler, although during COVID, few of us are, veterinarian, taxidermist, barrister, and philosopher. Now there's quite a combination. And he's the author of several books, uh, one coming out very soon, I believe. So I'll have to get my hands on that But before getting into the book, first the link between World Environment Day, the book and a Christian podcast like mine. Now, being a UN day brings some degree of suspicion from some Christians. In speaking about the book of Revelation, as I often do, I am reminded how certain Christians map the UN, or whatever political body they do not like, onto the image of the beast in the book of Revelation. Now, this is absurd textually. Historically, when we think about the setting of the Roman Empire, and I think theologically as well, it's a misfire. We project this idea onto bodies that we are suspicious of and a good number of people in general, and specifically conservative Christians, are suspicious about the UN. Now, for all its imperfections, The UN has a number of worthwhile institutions and activities and I would think that World Environment Day counted as a worthwhile activity of the UN. Christians should be alive to the idea of the world in World Environment Day. We so often hide behind our nationalism forgetting I think the famous blue marble photo that was taken of the earth from space in 1972. If you look at that, or any other satellite image of the whole disk of the Earth, you see no national boundaries, those things that we fight over. This is not to say that I don't think that nations are significant, are are important at times, beyond the sporting field. But that the blood spilt, I mean, you could turn, for example, to Carl Sagan's Pale Blue Dot speech, for the depth of that, and I've spoken about that in other episodes, but I just want to emphasise that when viewed from space there are no national boundaries because we have one earth, one environment, one atmosphere, one water cycle. And Christians understand uh, language of God creating the heavens and the earth, or the Eretz in Hebrew from Genesis, or the idea that God so loved the world, or the cosmos in John's Gospel. Days like World Environment Day remind us once more of a mud ball of wonder and delight. Why more Christians are not supportive of such days, I will not understand. I can't understand. Of course, the idea of a special day, World Environment Day or there any number of these, might smack of tokenism. But then that's the point to move us beyond tokenism. Let me give you a, um, a simple illustration. One doesn't simply celebrate one's own birthday on one day and then go on to loathe one's own life the next. A birthday is one day out of the year. Birthdays teach us to be thankful for our existence and the good things of life, the relationships around us, to remember our parents for some for whom that's not difficult, in particular our mothers who brought us into the world. So World Environment Day should also do that, as I say, to remind us of this wonder and delight um, of a mud ball, a blue marble in space. Now, the word environment itself is a tricky word. I know eco-modernists who quite literally abhor the word. They see it as being fetishized by environmentalists. They uh, these eco-modernists, um, or rather, the environmentalists, dualise this as, as something wholly other and held more highly in esteem than human culture. That that rev- revulsion of what it means to be human, presumably in the face of the, the awful mess that we've made of um, of the earth. But eco-modernists, like crass fundamentalists, seem to think the earth is little more than raw materials, or at least subsume its independent existence, or its aesthetic value, as being much less of much lesser worth than its capacity to deliver human flourishing, and that's normally um, conceived of as, as some form of economic flourishing. Both extremes, I think, are to be rejected. The environment is our environment and that of the non-human other. It is external to that which we construct in our built environments, whether that built environment is the clothing that you wear on your back or the building in which you dwell and the cities in which those dwellings also reside. Of course, you can say that the environment is anything that's external to your uh, own physical body. But then if you understand anything about what it means to be alive, we have an internal environment as well. But I'm not gonna nitpick on that. That's not the point. And it is here that we come to Foster's book. He asks us to try uh, to do what I think um, is often impossible or conceived of as impossible enter into the environment of others and try to experience it as they do. Now, in 1974, philosopher Thomas Nagel asked in a paper, what is it like to be a bat? Now, I confess I've never read the paper. It's yet another thing on my to-read list. But I mention it uh, by way of passing to note that the idea of trying to enter into the experience of another living creature that is not human is not a new thing in the Western tradition. And of course, I should note in passing and emphasizing the Western tradition, it's um, something that's well known and understood in other traditions, traditions, um, non-Western, non-white traditions. I'll return to that point a little bit later on. Of course, it's probably something that you can relate to from personal experience. Recently, I was on a panel uh, at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in the US, uh, virtually of course, and I discussed how like Jane Goodall, one of my inspirations for loving the non-human world was my dog, uh, my best friend, my playmate as a child from about three or four years of age. Dogs, of course, are our longest association uh, We have the longest association with dogs as our companion species. We have, in in many ways, co-evolved with them. We might say that they have been humanised and we have been canonised. It's hard to dismiss them as fellow travellers through life. But we know, for example, that they hear differently to us. They have much better noses. And I might note that when I walk my dog... um, it's not in a straight line for the most. And I certainly let him stop and sniff because that is the um, most intimate way in which he relates to his environment and is stimulated. Um, and so, of course, also they experience life uh, through their noses, much closer to the ground than we do. They would typically walk you know, with their eyes roving about the environment at five to six feet above the surface. And her eyes are certainly keener and forward-facing. Sense makes for a very different experience of the world. Which is kind of one of the key points, I think, in Foster's book. What he does is to take animals in increasing distance from human experience. So dogs would be easy in a way. They're certainly the most familiar. And he does so in... um, an interesting kind of way by relating them or matching them to the four elements of matter, earth, water, fire, and air. These beasts are badger, otter, fox, which is the one he relates to fire, red deer, and swifts, which um, he identifies as being associated with air, quite obviously, but also the ones that are, if you like, furthest from human experience. Certainly, if you think about brain structure, birds are literally bird brained, but I don't mean that in a condescending fashion, and they fly. As a philosopher, he has read Nagel and quote uh, refers to him in the book. He can ponder the philosophical issues behind trying to get uh, to whether or not animals are conscious. He seems, I think, to dismiss reductionism for which consciousness is a problem. Likewise, neuroscience is of some value as well, but as I noted earlier, um, or hinted at, knowing the neurological architecture is not enough. Some animals have quite different brains, but exhibit complex behaviours nonetheless. Corvids, like the blue jay, are, well, bird brained, and the brain structure is, is nothing like that of the human being, yet they appear to use deception. And more than that, the deception appears to be based on a theory of mind. Uh, just briefly, although this is not in my notes, but I'm fairly familiar enough with this, is that Blue Jays um, cache seeds in the ground. And there's been some rigorous experiments have done with this, that if they cache their favourite seed and then know they're being watched by another Blue Jay and they have stolen another Blue Jay's seed's cache beforehand, they will recache the seeds later on. In other words, what they can do is take the past recollection of their own act of thievery and project it on to another individual. That, it would seem to me, requires a theory of mind. So it's, it's not about philosophy per se, and it's not about neuroscience. Instead, the theme of the book is that Foster seeks to become a beast by trying to live like a beast he enters into their environment in order to more properly empathize with their experience as the other so he quote sat naked and shivering on a moorland watching the clouds break i swam into the dark holes of the east lynn river where the eels lie i dug a hole in the welsh hillside and i lived in it i lay by the side of a big road outraged by the headlights, feeling the pavement shudder beneath me as the trucks went past. All of this was an attempt to prove Wittgenstein wrong, who claimed that if a lion could speak, we wouldn't understand a word he was saying, as its world is massively different from ours. So was he successful? Well, I think in part and that's ultimately why I'm reviewing the book, not to um, suggest that the argument fails, but to argue that it succeeds in a quirky sort of way um, as far as this kind of attempt, I think, can. I won't review every chapter in what follows, but just give a sense of the kind of experiences Foster has in the environment of others. One thing worth saying is that it's a kind of an uncomfortable book to read. What do I mean by that? Well, in the chapter on badgers, we find Foster living in the ground. My instant claustrophobia kicked in to say nothing of the fear of cave-ins. And thankfully it wasn't a full-on burrow. He certainly wasn't uh, using an old uh, badger set. It was more of a scrape covered in branches and bracken, which mostly kept out the wet and some of the cold. He ate worms. You'd think from watching lots of Bear grills, this would have been okay to read for me, but no. The descriptions are reasonably vivid. Worm slime is a thing, and Foster can tell you a thing or two about it. There's a fair bit of being exposed as well. As a badger, the lack of fur is made up for by a tweed coat that he wears. I'm not altogether sure he was warm enough. As an otter, he wore a wetsuit. Now, Foster tries to convince the reader that this is more otter and not less otter-like, than going naked, but I'm not buying it. It highlights the gap between us. Lightly haired skin for the African savannah might mean it's smarter to wear the wetsuit, but it reminds us that the environment we enter needs something extra. This is after all what makes us human, and that is different to, and perhaps more than, otter and badger. They are also at the same time beyond us in their lack of need for this extra kind of coverage. And uh, I'll go on to talk more about the book in the second half of the program. Welcome back. In the first half of the program, we just dug into the meat of the book, um, Being a Beast. So let's move on. Moving to foxes then, we find that that was his childhood fascination. And in trying to become one with the fox, Foster is accosted by a police officer. In trying to observe the world from ankle level, sleeping under the rhododendrons, he is told to, bugger off home, sir. And no one likes to be on the wrong side of the law, and police, it seems, uniformly lack humour and imagination, on the beat when Foster simply states, I'm trying to be a fox. Not exactly illegal, but functionally so. Perhaps more unpleasant than uh, being in the cold and the wet, running into the law. Of course, any good nature book should have worthy memorial prose. It's in how well these books are written, how they bring imaginatively and lyrically to life the experiences of the author to translate some of the sense of beauty or wonder or discomfort or disgustingness of taste, as I indicated earlier, of some of the food that's eaten. I've chosen two, two quotes, um... As the cliche goes from the ridiculous to the divine. Or the sublime, I think. Yeah, is the quote, sorry. Uh, and in the first one, Foster's quirky sense of humour comes out a little bit. When writing on otters, he says, Sprint's a merry speciality. Its professors shamble happily along riverbanks with their clipboards, charting, extrapolating, and eating cheese and pickle sandwiches. But it's vain. Shit just won't bear the scientific edifices we purport to build on it. You can't reconstruct my life from stools. Dung is good for some things, though. So, in a section... Obviously, when it it comes to to, to wildlife, from from trackers to um, biologists and others, uh, a lot of time is spent with with stools, with scat. um, And that's a rather uh, colourful way of describing... um, his experience with um, with Otter spraint. He does talk a little bit about Sprinting himself. I'll save you that. But he does write a little bit later. I gave the children a little lecture on Sprinting, then sent them off up the valley. Sprint, I said, but don't fall in and be back for supper. I can honestly say that I've never said that to my own child. Not, of course, um, that we live in a place where I'd send him off outside of the home to begin with but neither to um, give him the instructions to defecate wherever he saw fit. Nonetheless, it was appropriate in the context of the book. So thank you very much, Charles, for that. But from the ridiculousness of learning to crap outside like an otter, comes this on Swift's. At the top of the tree line, there's a tangled delta. The chimneys swell. Start to knot and spill into a flat bowl that spins them together. The flotsam gathers pace, the streams are wider and denser, the swifts graze the streams. Perhaps there's another delta and another flattening farther up. Certainly, by an altitude of a hundred yards or so, the pickings are thin. Yet swifts are often very much higher than this, where they're unlikely to be feeding. It's, a different, it's different in open country. There the sun sucks up the earth hard. Banks of wind surf roll across the land, hit a wall, a ditch, a ripple, and surge up, becoming mushrooms. The stalks of air are huge, writhing rivers of tiny spiders and aphids, sometimes hundreds of yards wide, racing and tumbling spate from the fields to the high clouds. They rasp a hand plunged into them. And how's that for prose? Um, that's one of those passages where I just stopped and had to read it again. Um, unlined the bits about sp- spraint as, as much as I found them amusing. That's kind of the sort of thing that um, captures the imagination. It's not a bald, literalistic uh, account of insects being flown up into the air and being predated upon by these tiny birds. Uh, But that vision of becoming mushrooms evokes uh, the way in which we understand how little thermal updrafts operate and how they billow at the top and mix with the environment. It's really, yeah, I can't say enough about the prose there. So you might ask uh, in what's a fairly uh, brief overview of some of the style is to dig into some of the detail a little bit more. What's the point of the book? What did Foster learn? I get a sense from time to time uh, where he's genuinely frustrated at the immensity and perhaps the folly of the task, which again is not to say that I think it failed, but just the, the genuine, this is hard work. These creatures are other than human. There's genuine, a real genuine attempt, and at, at times I'm quite amazed by his patience to simply sit or lay, slow down and risk utter boredom to leave the human world behind. To try and imaginatively as other creatures do, just sit there and think the thoughts of of animals. You know, not to be, I don't know if you've ever gone outside and or walk the dog or whatever and you become sidetracked by the concerns of the day. There's that wonderful cartoon, I don't know if you've seen it, and there's a man out walking his dog and there's these little bubbles above his head and there's dollars and there's work and there's airplanes indicating travel and all sorts of other things. And the dog's just got the dog sitting next to it, it's human in the bubble above its head. So the fact that he's just been up to lay in the grass for hours on end and just try and slow life down. There are the obvious limits of the senses, but he notes that our human senses are not entirely useless. They're merely dulled by the way in which modern society has diverted their attention. And there's reflection upon um, when he's sat in his um, homemade badger set about these different sorts of smells of urine and of slugs and all sorts of other things that he's slowly able to get a, a sense of over time. So there is some hope for our senses. It's probably worth noting at this point too uh, the shamanistic nature of what he's attempting to transform oneself into another animal. And it's um, if you go in the back of the book and look up the word shaman, you'll see a number of references. There's a reflection upon the um, almost supernatural task of this. This is his personal journey, of course, in a land where the shamanistic vision is surely now a faux one in the form of, um, of Druidism. Written in Australia, of course, an Aboriginal perspective would have been essential And I'm not saying that this is simply a white man's folly, uh, but the path back, as it were, is highly contextual. And in other places in other times, he'd have had some teachers who could have added a great deal of value. So if I were to attempt this kind of thing, then I have places to go and people to speak to. Uh, It's certainly an attempt to shed some anthropocentrism. Uh, There's a few references to the Bible dotted throughout the book, which I found quite interesting. And he identifies, or I think misidentifies, Genesis 1 with colonialism. I say misidentifies, uh, but of course, it's a common error that has warped the text out of place. But I refuse to abandon it merely because it has been repeatedly abused. It's certainly true, however, as he writes that, quote, you can go straight from Genesis 1 to the Monsanto boardroom, end quote. And glyphosate has been implicated in cancers, liver and kidney damage, and developmental issues, just to name a few, even if it has been a useful herbicide. In moving beyond the anthropocentric, he identifies his own attachment to it, the comforts of being human. Yet I don't think he's established that different, um, or that he's not established that different is just different without being better or superior. And he pulls out the noble savage riff, which I think is unfortunate, in trying to describe the journey to the other. No more Rousseau, please. But yes, uh, change is possible, and Carter's imaginative turn helped him understand another world, one where wearing a watch could become offensive. And uh, there was a time, I think, while he was was being a badger, that he buried it in a plastic bag. And think, too, of all those human cultures where time is not master... Uh, but slave. And yet, of course, we all follow the seasons, whether or not we're hunter-gatherers or agrarian. Yet the other is still the other. When getting to know red deer and incidentally losing his interest in hunting, I think it's about the same time, if I understood that right from the book, Um, although I should note also that this is no diatribe on animal rights or veganism, nor uptight and sanctimonious sermonising of any stripe despite the swipes against human self-obsession on occasion, which I think are appropriate, he acknowledges a barrier to knowing them, that is the red deer, because why? They are prey and he is not. Uh, Such reality still shapes uh, their being, that that is the red deer, even though humans are long removed wolf and bear from the British Isles and no sight of return. Humans are the predator. Indeed, he comments, it is less culpable to eat a herbivore than a carnivore. Herbivores expect it and carnivores don't. In every culture, there's a taboo about eating carnivores. The shaman agrees with Yahweh. It's interesting, though, if you think about evolutionary history, we were prey at one point. Uh, Certainly when you get to the times of Lucy, Australopithecus afarensis um, in Ethiopia, she was well and truly small enough to be prey species. Anyway, of course, there's also an awful lot of going home nicking off for a pie to offset the worms, sleeping in beds and so on. This is simply a lot of goodbyes. While foxes help Carter see another side of London, you can't crawl about at ankle height among rotting food in bins that their stomachs won't digest forever. But Carter funnily insists that he has more in common with a fox than a fundamentalist from Alabama. Perhaps in sharing the world uh, sharing the world in his experiences, but in terms of mind hope and dreams i'm afraid not now taxonomy might not be the be all and end all of frontiers but fox human hybrids are the things of human dreams and japanese literature what they illustrate i'll leave to the various stories themselves you can however mate an english philosopher with an american baptist if you want to so it's mere trickery to deny reproduction means nothing from a biological perspective so, not artificial boundaries, merely ones that perhaps need to be transcended in more imaginative ways, as Kara has attempted to do, somewhat successfully. But the Hebrews, the authors of the, the Hebrew Bible, did a little bit too. All of us, they note, are taken from the soil, min ha adama, and all of us are living beings, nefesh khaya. In trying to learn what it is like um, to be the other, Carter has tried to become a better human being, for he says that, quote, if I can establish a real relationship with a non-human animal, there are grounds for optimism with regard to relationships with human. A curious argument. I'm not sure if this is the right way around or not, although I have heard it said that those who are cruel to animals as children grow up to be cruel to others. I also noted earlier um, about Jane Goodall. She seems to do okay with people, and her dog certainly taught her about non-humans before chimps did. Maybe it's the case that if you love an animal non-reciprocally, you live less with that expectation of humans, and I can love them better. Carter, in fact, does write of love that is necessarily reciprocal, but I wonder how wild non-humans can love us, other than perhaps for leaving them well enough alone. I'd say that learning to love non-humans has more aspects. It's ultimately loving ourselves and our neighbours, for we can't survive well without intact ecosystems, and COVID points us in that direction. As a Christian, of course, I'd also say that it's loving the Creator. But further, loving non-humans as neighbours raises us all up, in perhaps ways that Carter acknowledges and other ways. Maybe he doesn't. Ultimately, despite our differences in senses, we share one environment, a global one, with a good many other creatures. Some of them have no minds to know at all. Um, For some, it's hard to know how to love them, the parasite, the parasitical host, such as the mosquito. It's a big uh, task, but Carter has done an imaginative, valuable, if not colourful, scatological, and messy service in opening up. It's a book I can well recommend for those for whom the environment is a concern beyond just one day of the year. So anyway, that's my review or brief interactions with Being a Beast, Adventures Across the Species Divide by Charles Foster, 2016, and uh, relating that to a brief reflection upon the value of World Environment Day. So if you're new to this podcast, thank you for listening. If you're a regular listener, thank you once more for listening and to all of you, uh, God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.